Welcome once again to Proclaiming the One, Pastor Clint Poppy, Pastor Adam Moline. We are privileged to serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. With our Proclaiming the One program, we proclaim the one and only Savior from sin, our Lord Jesus Christ. We do so through the one-year series of readings in Lutheran Service Book. Today, we're going to be looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. Uh, Epiphany is one of those seasons that can be very long or very short, depending on whether Easter is early or Easter is late. So you don't get a chance to hear these readings for Epiphany 4 very often. If, uh, if you're hearing this program, you know that Easter is late this year, and uh, there's one more possibility. There is a fifth Sunday after Epiphany that is extremely rare when that comes up in our uh, church year calendar, but uh, today we're going to be looking at the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. The Holy Gospel for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany takes us to Matthew chapter 8. And uh, we see Jesus at the end of what appears to me to be a very long day. Matthew 8, 23 to 27. Pastor? When Jesus got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this that even winds and sea obey him? All right. Uh, Very, very uh, wonderful text for us. And sometimes people struggle when they come across the miracles of Jesus. They don't know what to do with them. And every one of these miracles teaches us that uh, something about the identity of Jesus, generally, that he is who he says he is, God in the flesh for us. Every miracle is also a foretaste of the feast to come, a preview of coming attractions for the mother of all miracles that will take place on Easter Sunday. Pastor, when I, uh, when I introduced this uh, gospel, I said that these words from Matthew eight twenty three to 27 appear to be the culmination of a very, very long and tiring day for Jesus. Um, what's going on in Matthew chapter 8 before we get to this uh, scene where Jesus is sleeping in the boat? Well, um, what Jesus has just finished is uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of chapter 8. And so it begins with him coming down the mountain of uh, that that particular sermon, which would be in the area of uh, Galilee, just on the north side of um, the Sea of Galilee, in fact, is what tradition holds. And so he comes down and he heals a leper. He talks um, about the faith of the centurion. He heals many people, and he even gives a little sermon about the cost of being 
being a Christian and following him and uh, the idea that there is a, it's not an easy journey to be a Christian. And uh, so all these things are happening, um, and uh, that's then when he climbs into the boat. Okay, so so we have Jesus after the Sermon on the Mount, and that's uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And then in Matthew 8, we have Jesus preaching and teaching and preaching and teaching and healing and preaching and healing and preaching and healing. And uh, you get to the end of the day, and uh, after a long day of preaching, what do you do, Pastor? Well, I usually uh, stretch out on the couch with a a nice glass of scotch and uh, (laughs) just uh, chill out. Uh, Yeah, well, the older I get, the more I need my Sunday afternoon nap because uh, preaching and teaching in church is exhausting. And uh, it's it's exhilarating while it's going on. Uh, It's a rush, but then all of a sudden when the rush is over, you, you just crash. You just crash. So I think hey, we need to remember that Jesus is truly a human being. We have that going on. Uh, Jesus got into the boat. The disciples followed him. Behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. You've been, uh, you've been fishing on the boat. Um, you know, probably not on any body of water as large as the Sea of Galilee, but uh, you you know how maybe you have Lake Malax in uh, Minnesota is uh, larger than the Sea of Galilee. So okay, okay. so uh, uh, the uh, land lubber from Nebraska has actually been on the big water. Um, it is often the case when a storm comes up quickly. And no matter how big of an outboard motor you've got, you struggle struggle getting off the water, getting into safe harbor. Um, that's just how quickly things happen, especially with storms. Have you ever experienced that, Pastor? Uh, yeah, it's uh, definitely a challenge, especially um, you know hooking the boat up to the trailer to try and pull it out when the waves are blowing and it's going up and down. Um, and even this particular, uh, the Sea of Galilee, when you're out in a boat in the middle of that, you can see the shore on either side, but it is still can be a long ways away. And uh, the reality is, is that to the uh, northwest of the Sea of Galilee, there's a long valley through which storms can quickly blow up, and you wouldn't even be able to see them coming until it comes around the corner of the hill uh, and is right there upon you. And so it is a challenge. They don't have an outboard motor, um, and you can't use your sails as well when there's a big storm because it's ripped and torn and uh, can even break your mast. And so it is a challenge. What do you do? How do you ride out the storm in a rickety fishing boat 2,000 years ago? When you uh, when you compare this account in Matthew with with the account of the same event in Mark. And, uh, you know, these are Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic gospels. They are meant to be read together. In Mark, uh, you see that uh, the, the waves are welling up from the bottom of the ocean and the winds are coming. It's, it's like all hell is breaking loose against Jesus and his disciples as they're in the boat in the middle of the water. It is, uh, it's a horrific sight. And these veteran fishermen who are in the boat, who have probably seen just about any kind of a storm that you can possibly see, um, they're terrified. They're terrified. Jesus 
is asleep. What does that tell us about Jesus, Pastor? Well, I mean, in one sense, it tells us that he is a human being, as we talked about earlier, that he uh, is completely human being, that his body gets tired and that he needs to rest just like all the rest of us do. Um, it also tells us that he understands why he's there and what actually is his future, uh, and that he's not concerned about anything else except for what is ahead in his future, his death and resurrection. Is the fact that he is asleep not only a testimony to the fact that he's truly a human being, because humans sleep, but as true God, even while he's sleeping, he's in complete control of the situation? Can we go there? Um, yeah, I think that's a, a place where things get a little murky and difficult for us to understand uh, in terms of trying to understand the communication of attributes between um, both Jesus's divine nature and his human nature, and at the same time trying to fit that into the understanding of the Holy Trinity and who's running things when Jesus sets aside his glory and takes on our human flesh. It's, it's a complicated thing. He is able uh, to control the wind and the waves, as we see in this particular text. Now, is he just always running the weather uh, from the person of Jesus, uh, or is he letting God the Father do that? That's where I think it gets a little difficult for us to tell. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate that because uh, I hadn't really thought of that. I came across that in a uh, sermon by C.F.W. Walther on this text, where he does some wild and crazy and some pretty amazing things as he uh, preaches this particular text. The, uh, the disciples wake him up, and I believe it's in Mark also where they basically accuse Jesus of not caring. Uh, don't you care? The boat's about ready to sink. And here they say, uh, save us, Lord, we are perishing. Now, they know where to go. They know, to they know to go to Jesus. They know he has the power to save. Exactly what they know about his power, um, we're not really sure at this point in, in time. But when they say, we are perishing, is that a sign of weak faith, uh, no faith, misplaced faith? What, uh, what do we make of the second half of their cry to Jesus for help? Yeah, it does confess their faith, doesn't it? In the sense that, uh, number one, their main concern still is their own skins. And we see that this is going to change uh, for them as they see Jesus die and rise again. And uh, now all of a sudden they are um, not quite so concerned about it. Um, it also shows us that, that perhaps they don't know their Bible as well as they ought to, or at least they don't understand who Jesus is as the Messiah yet. Um, who in the Old Testament, it's very clear that the Messiah will be lifted up and that he will die a gruesome death. Isaiah is very clear on this. And so either they haven't put together that Jesus is the fulfillment of all these words in Isaiah, for example, 53 uh, and other places, um, or that um, they don't believe it or that, you know, they haven't read their Bible enough 
Jesus isn't going to drown in a boat wreck in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. He's going to go to the cross and bleed and die there, and they haven't quite understood that yet. And that's really a big thing in the Gospel of Matthew in general, is that it's building and building and building, and it's only when they finally see it happen and Jesus bleed and die on the cross that they're like, aha, this is what's supposed to happen. This is what he's been talking about. This is what all the Bibles say. Um, And even in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, when it talks about things being fulfilled, 15 times. Everything Jesus is doing is to fulfill what has been taught in the Old Testament, and um, the Old Testament never says the Messiah will drown to death in a a boat wreck. So, Uh, it's uh, I I appreciate your comments there, and uh, you said after Jesus dies and rises, then they get it, kind of aha, and yet at the end of Matthew, as Jesus is getting ready to ascend into heaven, they say, Lord, at this time, are you going to restore the nation to, uh, of Israel? They still hadn't put all the pieces together, and it's until the miraculous outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost when that true aha uh, is is finally delivered to them or given to them. And so maybe we shouldn't be very hard on them with the weakness of their faith uh, because we're right there with them, aren't we? Well, I think that's the key is that um, uh, I believe that they cannot, by their own reason or strength, believe in Jesus Christ just as I cannot either. And so I think that's something that we also do is that we take these apostles and we build them up to be holier than thou, when the reality is they are sinful people just like you and me. Um, God has just uh, kicked them in the behind a little bit more than he has us, perhaps. When we come back, we're going to take a look at what Jesus does in the midst of the boat being swamped in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. This is Proclaiming the One. Don't change that dial. We'll be right back. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. This is Pastor Clint Poppy. Along with me is Pastor Adam Moline. We serve the saints at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Lincoln, Nebraska. We're looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. In our opening segment, we uh, began our look and our study of the gospel reading for Epiphany 4, Matthew 8, 23 to 27. We talked about uh, the context, what's going on in Matthew. Before we get to Matthew 8, we have the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus has had a busy day. He's preaching and teaching and healing and preaching and teaching and healing. And now it's the end of the day. He gets in the boat and he goes to sleep. As they are out in the middle of the water, a uh, wild, crazy, furious storm threatens everybody in the boat. And the boat is to the point of capsizing. The disciples come to Jesus. Uh, They ask him for help, and they kind of chide him all at the same time. Almost, uh, you know, uh, don't you care what happens to us kind of a thing. And in Matthew 8, verse 25, they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. 
And we want to pick up at verse 26. Jesus said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Pastor, when, uh, when Jesus responds like this with uh, a question that's not really a question, and Jesus does this often. Uh, he does this when he's confronted by the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. Jesus is always in control of the conversation. Uh, always. Always. No matter what their attitude, no matter what their prerequisite, no matter what their plot and scheme, Jesus always shifts it so that he is in complete control. And I believe that's exactly what's going on here. Jesus says, why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Pastor, explain that, uh, I suppose, rhetorical question statement. It would be a, a fitting way to describe what it is. Yeah, and I think it's kind of a, a milk toast translation here, too, because in the, the Greek, uh, he's really asking them, why are you so cowardly? Uh, it's not really a fear thing. It's like, uh, it's. I know fear is a part of being a coward, but there's a lot more that comes with being a coward. And so he's asking that's, them. That's really, that's really helpful, Pastor. Uh, one one uh, of a thousand examples where uh, your pastor being trained in the original languages sometimes can bring out a nuance that uh, you just can't see in, uh, in an English translation. Thank you. And I think then we see that uh, the cowardness, the cowardlyism, I don't know how you would say that, uh, is a result of the lack of faith. And so um, in faith, um, we have nothing to fear because we know the world has already been overcome, that uh, Jesus has promised to raise us on the last day. And so what's the worst thing that can happen? Uh, you know, you, you're dead for a little while, and that's going to happen either way. And so I, Jesus is really uh, rebuking their lack of faith, and he's doing it in a very direct, um, uh, I hate to say this, toxic masculinity sort of way. <laughs> um, you know what I mean? He's, he's, he's being aggressive to them, and uh, um, he's calling out their sin that is their lack of faith. He's addressing it directly so that they might repent of it uh, and uh, then also trust and believe in him as well. When he asked them, why are they so cowardly, what would be the opposite of being cowardly? I'd say brave. Uh, brave or courageous. Courageous. That was, that that was, was the word. word. That was the word that kind of came to my mind. And uh, uh, we have exhortations throughout scripture i'm thinking especially of the book of joshua uh, be bold and courageous the lord your god goes with you wherever you go and jesus is the fulfillment not only of the person but even the name of joshua and uh, we are filled with a courage to face any and every situation you know uh, it's been you know seems like forever now, uh, but we've been dealing with a, uh, a pandemic, an epidemic, uh, whatever you want to call it, and I'm not talking about COVID. I'm talking about the pandemic of fear, and uh, people do not know how to evaluate risk. People seemingly are afraid of their own shadow, and uh, I, I think that I think the 
the word of God has something to say to this epidemic of fear. Don't you think, Pastor? I do, and I think you even see it in uh, the example of some of the people in the early church. Um, you know, one of my favorite ones is St. Lawrence, uh, who I know you like because of uh, football, the the saint patron saint of the gridiron. Yeah, patron saint of football. Um, the emperor comes to the church and says to St. Lawrence, all your treasures and all your wealth, we need you to bring that to us so we can use it. And so the next day, St. Lawrence shows up at the uh, headquarters with the poor and the lame and the widowed, and he says, here are the treasures of the church. Uh, how can we help? So he gets arrested. <laughs> and they were not amused. <laughs> they were not amused. He gets arrested, and they, they grill him to death. And as they're grilling him to death, uh, you know, they've got him tied to the gridiron over the flames. He says to the guards, I'm done on this side. You should flip me over, um, because he knows what's happening, and he knows what his end goal and his end result is going to be. It's going to be death, but death is only temporary, and so he need not fear it. Um, and I think that that says a lot about uh, where we really struggle in our modern day and age, where we are completely paralyzed by the fear of death to the point where we won't even leave our homes, we won't even talk to people, we uh, s- step back and spray people with uh, you know, rubbing alcohol um, because we're so terrified. Um, I, I saw a video from 1907 uh, when the flu was beginning of a guy doing that, uh, you know, so it's, it's not new. And yet uh, I think the reality is, is that it really, I hope this, this doesn't get me in trouble, it really displays our cowardice at, at uh, death when we know in Jesus we have victory over it. Yeah, we we don't want to act foolish, and we want to love our neighbor and all that kind of stuff. I'm not going to cough in anybody's face, right? But at the same time, I'm not going to be afraid to live because I know that when I die, and I will die, uh, trust me, when I die, uh, I know where I'm going, and that fills me with a confidence and a joy. Take they my life, goods, fame, child, or wife, though these all be gone. The victory has been won. The kingdom ours remaineth. That should be our rallying cry and our confidence in season, out of season, in the boat, or out of the boat. And, uh, you know, uh, Jesus uh, chides them. He chides us. And then Jesus displays his power. Now, there is something really, really unique about this miracle. We, we have miracles of multiplication with the uh, feeding of the 5,000. We have miracles of healing. We have miracles of Jesus raising the dead. Uh, we have here a miracle of nature. And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. Now, when a, when a storm stops on the water, it takes a long time before things get back to a calm. Because the waves that started on one end of the lake got to work their way to the other end of the lake. And all of these things are going so that even when the storm is over, it takes a long time for there to be calm. Jesus speaks a word. The wind and the waves stop and there is immediate calm. What a powerful picture 
of the power of Jesus, the power of the word of Jesus, the power that God displays even now when he says to you, Pastor Moline, to me, Pastor Poppy, to all of those who are listening, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And then whatever storm is raging in our life, if I can go there, he says, be still. Be calm. Pastor? It, it's a uh, fulfillment of Job chapter 38 when God finally answers Job uh, after he's been having this philosophical discussion with all of his friends for much of the rest of the book. And uh, God says to him, uh, you know, don't you know who I am? Who shut in the sea with doors when it was first burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment in thick darkness, its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no further. And here your proud waves be stayed, Jesus is saying, in a sense, that's me. I'm God. I'm the God who talked to Job. I'm the God who created the sea, and I'm the God who's in charge of it. And so then you think about it, the the cowardice that we saw in the disciples who are in the boat with Jesus, God, who is in charge of the entire world. Um, and I think then that that also, and I know this maybe gets into the allegory of the, the particular text, but um, Christian, you're in the boat, the ark of the Holy Christian Church, with Jesus, who's present with you all the time. What do you have to be afraid of or to be a coward towards? Nothing. You're in good hands, not with Allstate, but with Jesus, and, uh, and that's really, I think, the whole point of this particular text. And it may seem like Jesus is asleep. It may seem like Jesus doesn't know and doesn't care, but he does. And the proof that he knows and cares is his bloody death and glorious resurrection for you. Or, or even, uh, I'm going to put the onus back on us again, maybe there's no reason to be super concerned, and that's why Christ is asleep, and the problem is your own... I mean, I think that's the thing with the it being the word coward instead of afraid. Um, cowardice wells up within us, and I think that that's the key here. We don't need to be cowards. We're in the boat with Jesus, uh, and he's not worried about it, so why should we be also? The, uh, the end of our text from Matthew 8 gets to the point that is made in every miracle, whether it's explicitly stated or not. The men marveled, saying, what sort of man is this? that even winds and sea obey him. Well, you brought that out with uh, regard to the fulfillment of Job 38. So with regard to the identity of Jesus, what sort of man is this, Pastor? Well, he's God and man together in one person. One, Well, not one person, one, um, one individual. He is um, our Savior. And I think that this question, Matthew writes it in this way, the disciples ask themselves that, but he's also asking you that, so that you might put yourself uh, in the boat with Jesus and say, well, what do I need to worry about? I'm in, I'm in good shape here. The, uh, the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, who was to come into the world, the fulfillment of all scriptures, our Savior and our Lord, who promises, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to see how God is in control of the wind and the waves as we look to Jonah chapter 1. We'll be right back. You are listening 
to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. Welcome back to Proclaiming the One. Pastor Poppy, Pastor Moline, we're looking at the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. In our first two segments, we examine the gospel reading for Epiphany 4, Matthew 8, 23 to 27, Jesus calming the storm. In our Old Testament reading, we're going to see a different kind of storm. Uh, We talked about Job 38 and how Jesus is the fulfillment of that in Matthew 8. Um, Now we're going to turn to, I think, what is a pretty familiar story for not only Christians, but for people who are even outside of the church. Most people have heard of Jonah and the big fish or Jonah and the whale. And our Old Testament reading for today is Jonah 1, long narrative, 1 through 17. Pastor? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amati, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to him, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. 
And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. I just get shivers up my spine every time I hear that, Pastor. Uh, and uh, thank you for that. It, uh, it's, it's an amazing, an amazing account. And to read that account after we have just read Matthew 8, you, you see so many parallels there that uh, it certainly is no coincidence. Certainly is no coincidence. So, uh, you know, we, we don't have time to do an in-depth study of Jonah 1. I wish we did. But, you know, w- we know the story. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to preach the word of God. In other words, God wants to save Nineveh. But Nineveh is a, an exceedingly wicked place, and Jonah is cowardly. Jonah is afraid. He's afraid for his own skin. So Jonah says, go one way, or God says, Jonah, go one way, and Jonah goes the opposite way. He's running away from God. But you can't run away from God. God knew exactly what was going on. Jonah pays the fare. He gets on the boat. He's exhausted from all of his running away from God. He goes down to the bottom of the boat, and he goes to sleep. And God hurls a great and mighty storm and wind. And I just loved all the different times you had to say tempestuous as you were reading that text. Uh, It's getting worse and worse and worse. These veteran sailors, they throw the cargo into the sea. They all cry out to their gods. Doesn't do any good. And then they realize, oh, we got somebody else sleeping. There's one more God we could pray to. Let's hedge our bets. Jonah then tells him, or tells them, um, that he's a Hebrew. And he fears the God who created the heavens and the earth. The God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid. Pastor, isn't Jonah preaching to these pagans? When he makes this confession of faith, who he believes in? I, I think he definitely is, and I think it uh, also converts them. And I, I know this is going to sound weird to say, but I think in this entire book that uh, Jonah is a Christ figure. And I think Jesus himself draws that parallel as well when he's uh, giving that sign as the uh, the proof for what he's doing, the sign of Jonah that who was in the belly of the whale for three days. So you see God wants to send his word. It's really not about Jonah at all. He wants to send the word to Nineveh, to a pagan city, to a um, non-Hebrew city. And um, we have Jonah sleeping, but we also have the discussion about um, sleeping, just like Jesus. We have a discussion about the man's innocent blood being upon them, which is exactly uh, what happens to us in the blood of Christ. And in fact, we have um, on um, Good Friday, the, uh, the Jews say, let his blood be upon us and upon uh, our children. Again, bringing Jonah into that. Uh, we also, at the book of Jonah, this is not in our text, but it ends with a rhetorical question, just like uh, this particular text in Matthew does. Uh, and so I think Jonah is prefiguring Christ in this entire Old Testament lesson. And uh, Jesus then is the fulfillment of what Jonah hasn't done because, of course, God fulfills all the things that we cannot in our sinful nature. And so 
Don't get caught up on the fact that Jonah's running away. Instead, get caught up on the ways in which he prefigures the one who's going to come and do what he has failed to do. I think, uh, thank you. Thank you. Excellent. Uh, I think one of the things that uh, amazes me the most is Jonah's a coward. And he doesn't want to preach the word because he doesn't really believe that the word is powerful enough to convert the people of Nineveh, and he's going to end up dying. I think it's worse than that. I don't think he wants them to convert. I think he wants them to go to hell. We see that later on, don't we, for sure. Yeah. But uh, here, uh, God shows him the power of his word. He makes this confession in the middle of the storm about who he believes in, and all of a sudden, all the other sailors are going, okay, we believe in him too. Thanks, Jonah. Uh, you know, We're not going to throw you in because we believe in this God, and if he's powerful enough to do this storm, uh, we don't want that wrath upon us. We're not going to throw you in. the. We don't want innocent blood on us. We don't, uh, so we see all of this, uh, the power of the word to convert and to save coming out of cowardly Jonah's mouth, and God is giving him this picture right now. I, I, I'm showing you, this is how it's going to work in Nineveh. Just trust me. Just believe me. Believe the power in the word. Now, Pastor, um, finally, uh, they, uh, they try to row hard, get back to dry land. They could not. The sea grew more and more tempestuous. And then in Jonah 1, verse 14, Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done you for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. When they are praying here, this certainly looks to me like a prayer of faith. What do you think? I think so. I think they've been converted by the preaching of Jonah, and I think that um, they're actually going to do exactly what Jonah told them to do, what the word of the God uh, of Jonah told them to do. Jonah himself said, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. I think we have to think about it even in an even wider thing again, in the fact that the sea is rough and raging, and this is um, oftentimes... uh, pictured as a judgment of God. Uh, the, the Hebrew people do not like water fare. Uh, Jonah, it's really weird that he would try and escape by water, perhaps because he knows Hebrews don't ever go on the sea. They don't have... Um, Won't look for me Their there. enemies are the, the sea people, the Philistines. Um, and so God's judgment is often seen as the storms of the sea raging and, and uh Jonah gets thrown into the midst of it in the same way that Jesus, in a sense, gets thrown into the midst of our sin and God's judgment also. So again, we're looking ahead to Jesus in this particular account. After, the, uh, after they throw Jonah into the, into the water and Jonah is sinking, bloop, 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 the uh, reaction of the sailors confirms that they truly believe. It says, verse uh, 16, Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Isn't that the response of faith, Pastor? It is. It is. And uh, it's a confession of the faith that now uh, they have seen with their own eyes uh, what this particular God can do, and they don't want to get on his bad side again. And Jonah is not done. The Lord still has much work for him to do. And he provides the great fish. 
and the fish swallows Jonah. And it is a fish. It, it is a fish, according to the word. The, the word in the Hebrew is dog, so it means fish. Uh, it is not Leviathan, which means whale. And uh, we have um, historical accounts of people, uh, literally, and, and one uh, just within the last couple of years, where a man was swallowed by a big fish, and he didn't die in the belly. Uh, the fish got indigestion and barfed him up. So um, just like here. So anybody that tells you that this, uh, this story is a fable, a myth, fantastic. Uh, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created all the fish, the God who made the storm rage, uh, he can make a fish big enough and preserve Jonah's life inside its belly for three days. Uh, he, uh, he may have looked like fish barf when, uh, when he got uh, put up on the bank, but God will use us to accomplish his way, his word, his purpose. And, of course, three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. This is uh, out of Jesus' own mouth. This is a picture of Jesus in the belly of the earth for three days, crucified and risen for you, for me, for Jonah, for the sailors on the boat, for the people of Nineveh, and for the life of the world. Oh, man, what an amazing text. We need to take a break. When we come back, we're going to look at our epistle reading, Romans 13, 8 to 10. Don't change that dial. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska. little flock fear not the foe god fills us with a confidence with a courage that flows from the cross and empty to christ's victory over sin death and the grave for you welcome back to proclaiming the one pastor poppy pastor moline we serve the saints at good shepherd lutheran church in lincoln nebraska we'd love to have you join us for worship Every Sunday at 8 and 10.30 with Sunday School for All Ages in between. Wednesday evenings year-round at 6.30. You can listen live to every one of our worship services on 95.7 KNNALP The Cross. You can also check us out on our website, thecross957.org. Download the app. Check out our podcast. We've got lots and lots of uh I think really good theological material for you. Give us your feedback, and uh, if you have a, a favorite hymn that you'd like us to examine on At Home in the Hymnal, a topic that you'd like for us to cover on Equipping the Saints, we are here to serve. The uh, epistle reading for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany is short and sweet. Romans 13, 8 to 10. Pastor? Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Well, we we really need to unpack that because there are many people that have some wild and crazy definitions of love. For some people, love simply equates to sex. For some people, love simply equates to tolerance. For some people, love is only a feeling or an emotion. For others, love is an excuse to do and say anything you want to. So, Pastor, uh, this little epistle is all about love from beginning to end, all three verses. So where do you want to start with our discussion of this particular text and what God means when he says love is the fulfilling of the law? I think that those words are really important words for us to understand, and perhaps an example is a good way to start. Um, You know, most people love their kids, and because they love their kids, there's particular boundaries that are set. Even the most lax parent has some sort of boundary that they set for their kids because they love them. Don't play in the street. Uh, Don't walk into traffic. Look both ways before you cross the street. Uh, Don't put your hand up on the stove, right? I remember that one with our kids. They were always reaching up on the cabinet where they couldn't see for food, and we had to tell them, that's fine, you can look over here for a chip, but don't do it by the stove because it's hot, you'll burn yourself. And all these uh, boundaries that are set, and every loving parent has them, are there because in love, they want to protect their child. They want them not to be injured or harmed. And so I think that that understanding of love is a really important thing because it's not just letting people do whatever they want. It's not letting people run willy-nilly around the world. Love has boundaries, and the boundaries are for your own good. And Now, when we apply that to understanding who God is and how God works, God has told us in his scripture what the boundaries are for our own good. And uh, in in our love and our uh, his love for us, we are to operate within those boundaries. And I think that's really a key thing here. I think uh, I think that boundary word picture is uh, very, very good. And we have boundaries on the street. We call it a curb. And uh, keeps us from going in the ditch most of the time. If I hit the curb going completely out of control, way too fast, I'm still going to end up in the ditch. But uh, there's a really good chance that that boundary, that curb, will keep me from hurting or harming myself or others. Just like when you tell your little kids to not touch the stove, uh, for the most part of the time, they don't do it. But that doesn't 100% preserve them from curiosity and foolishly burning their fingers and, uh, you know, testing, testing the limits of mom and dad's patience as well. So uh, we have a reference to certain commandments and then kind of the catch-all at the end with regard to or, or any other commandment here. Uh, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, um, The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor 
as yourself. Pastor, unpack that for me, would you please? Well, I think it's interesting that he picked these four particular commandments to uh, to talk about, you know what I mean? Especially when we look at the world and the way that it operates. Um, adultery is a huge issue. And what's the argument that uh, is always used for uh, justifying adultery? Well, we love each other. And who are you to say we can't love each other? Uh, that's the argument made for homosexuality, for adultery with uh, you know heterosexuals, for cheating on your wife. Well, I love them now, not you. Uh, and if love actually has boundaries, and one of the boundaries is you shall not commit adultery, um, then that's a poor excuse for self-justification. And I think that's what God's cutting through. We could do the same thing for uh, you shall not murder, right? Uh, what's the excuse that's made for uh, aborting babies? Well, this is my body, and yet love Love isn't doing any harm to your neighbor, and wouldn't you say that the baby growing within your womb is a neighbor, uh, a very close, uh, connected neighbor, in fact? And so um, when you say, I love myself, and uh, this is my body, I'm going to take care of what I want to do, then you're not actually loving, and you've gone against, uh, over that boundary of where God has set up what love actually is. And you could do that with the other ones too, right? Stealing uh, or with coveting. I think these four are mentioned for that particular reason. These are the ones we really, really struggle with um, in our relationship with one another and our self-justifying. So um, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God tells us what the right love is, what the right boundary is, and how to actually care for people within the boundaries that he sets up. And it doesn't mean you let them do whatever they want, but rather you teach them the same boundaries that you yourself ought to live in as well. Okay, I I really like that boundary talk and applying that to each uh, commandment is, uh, I think, really, really helpful. Pastor, at the beginning, verse 8, it says, Owe no one anything except to love each other. Looking at love as something we owe, like a debt to be paid. How is the Christian to, to understand that uh, debt of love to our neighbor? Well, um, the debt of love uh, that we owe our neighbor is the same thing that God has always already given to us in Jesus Christ, who loved us um, in such a way that John himself describes the very definition of love. This is love that he loved us and gave himself up for us as an atoning sacrifice, propitiation for sin. And that then is the same thing we ought to give to one another. We should never have any left in our account that we haven't given uh, to the people around us. In the same way, when they're doing that for us also. It's this great um, swapping back and forth of the love that ultimately has its beginning and source in God. And so I think it's a beautiful picture here in that particular way. We don't need to keep love to ourselves. We don't need to care more about our body than the body of another. We don't need to care more about uh, our desires and lustfulness more than we care about the people God has actually placed in our life to love. Um, We need to give that love and we need to give it generously, because that's what God has done for us in Jesus. Pastor, at the uh, end of verse 8, it says, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Is that talking about the Christian who loves one another? Is that talking about Jesus, the one? Um, I, I thought 
Jesus is the one who came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Uh, how, how are we to look at that? And we know in this last section of Romans that Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching us how to live a Christian life, how to be uh, the, the sanctified, holy, holy, holy person that God has made us. How, how, do, how do all these pieces fit? Yeah, uh, the one who loves another and has fulfilled the law, of course, is Jesus. And uh, we talked about that before, about how uh, John says this is love, that uh, God loved us and gave his son Jesus for us. Um, So he is the one who fulfills the law perfectly. But the amazing thing is, is that in love then, God also baptizes us into Jesus Christ and into his death and into his resurrection. And so the love that has its source and beginning in God, that is a love beyond any other love, wells up then to mark and identify all the other people who trust in Jesus as Jesus. Uh, And I don't mean that we are Christ um, in a literal sense, but instead that when God looks at us, he sees Jesus' love for us and the fulfillment of the law in Jesus um, and counts it into our account. That sets us free then to actually do that in a small way uh, for the people who are around us. We are never going to save ourselves by love, Um, by fulfilling the law of love, because we can never love perfectly. And yet Jesus has, and that love is the love that God counts on our behalf. Last point here, Pastor. We often say that the epistle reading is a practical application of the truths that have been brought out in the Old Testament and gospel reading. The, uh, The primary truth is that Jonah is an absolute coward, And God teaches him strength and courage through the power of the word and his miraculous work. The disciples are cowards in the boat. And Jesus teaches them courage in the word uh, and the power of his words in calming the storm. How does this cowardice and courage play out in this section on love in Romans 13? Well, um, you know, I, I don't know. Uh, to, to say that um, love is, um, is uh, not cowardice, I think, you know, we could say that. I guess that might be a little bit of a stretch. Um, I think we need to not be afraid to love each other in the same way that God has loved us. I think the key, though, ultimately always is driving us back to Christ who in his own death and resurrection has overcome the world and all the things that it can throw at us. And so we don't need to be afraid to be a Christian, even if the world hates us or persecutes us or the, uh, you know, to use the allegorical sense, the storms of life are difficult and challenging. Um, We're free in Christ and we have nothing to be afraid of in this world. And so that's really, I think, the key for these particular texts. Yeah, I guess guess where I was going with that or what I was thinking— is um, I know how to love myself. I'm really good at it. Um, sometimes the thought of loving others um, makes me weak-kneed and lily-livered, and I turn into a coward. And only the transformative, forgiving power of the blood of Christ can enable me, to use a lack of a better word, to love as Christ has loved me. Please pray with me, would you please? The collect of the day for the fourth Sunday after Epiphany. Almighty God, you know we live in the midst of so many dangers that in our frailty, we cannot stand upright. 
Grant strength and protection to support us in all dangers and carry us through all temptations. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. For Pastor Moline, I'm Pastor Poppy. Thanks for tuning in. God's richest blessings in Christ. You are listening to KNNALP 95.7 FM, Lincoln, Nebraska.